The word of God says in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. Well, Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. We'd like to call this episode the battlefield of the soul. The battlefield of the soul. Because we're going to recognize that this is not just a battle that the children of Israel fought, but it's really a battle that we too are fighting, and you'll see what I mean by that. Now the good news is it's a battle we're fighting, but it's not a war that we're fighting uh, for victory. It's a war where or it's a battle we're fighting from victory. You see, Christ has already won the war that we're going to be referring to, but now there are battles to be fought, and we're going to see not only what those battles are, but how to fight those battles. All that is coming up in the next few minutes. Um, but as we look through these verses, I want us to see the presence of the fight, the plan of the foe, the picture of the flesh, and then finally the path of faith. Um, and I think all this will, will jump out of the text quite evidently. Um, now, in, in just getting into the idea of the presence of the fight, the fact that there is a battle going on, one of the most dangerous things is when there's a battle going on, but we don't even know it is happening. And that's really going to be the case at the very beginning of this battle. Um, and, and you'll see why, because it's going to have to do with the strategy of the Amalekites. But uh, how often are there battles going on, battles in our home, battles for our heart, battles in our society, uh, and we don't even recognize the battles going on. We're just going about everyday life, and it's right there in front of us, and yet we're ignoring the fight because we don't even know that it's a battle. And that's really the most dangerous, um, the dangerous type. I'll give you another example. What if you have cancer? Yeah, I had cancer, and when I had cancer, I'll tell you, more dangerous than knowing I had cancer was not knowing I had cancer. Because when I don't know it, I'm not doing anything about it. I'm not getting treatment. I'm not getting radiation. I'm not getting surgery. I, I, I'm just living with cancer. Once I know, sure, it might change my mindset. There might be an element of where I have to um, throw my fear to the Lord, my worry, my anxiety, whatnot. But it's still better to know than not to know. Uh, because then you can actually deal with what's going on. Well, we're going to see the same thing is true in regards to the battlefield or the battle even taking place in regards to our mind, our heart in this world. And so we see the presence of the fight. And the presence of the fight comes right out in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Again, Rephidim, if you remember last time we talked about the meaning of this place, stays or resting places. And you would think that in a resting place, that's not where the battle's going to take place. And yet so often, this is exactly what happens, where we thought we were going to get rest, where we anticipated it was a moment of reprieve, has now become a, a, a time of wrestling, a time of, um, a, a time of just difficulty. 
And I want you to know you're not alone. Spiritually speaking, biblically speaking, this is a common occurrence. And not only that, I think oftentimes after moments of victory or after moments where you see God's hand of provision, that's often too when the enemy wants to come and attack. And we know they've just experienced not just the manna, but now they had water from the rock um, and now there's this battle. And who are they fighting against? Uh, well, Amalek. But Amalek, the very word Amalek, you know what it means? Warlike. Warlike. Their very name, their very identity is in their fighting habits. And yet, who are these children of Israel? They're former slaves. You think Egypt taught them how to fight? Yeah, right. Why would you teach those who might rebel against you, who you're afraid because they're becoming too numerous back in chapter 1? Why, why would you teach them to, uh, to, to use the sword? No. This was a group of laborers who now are fighting a warlike people. Let's say the odds are, are, not, um, are not with them. In fact, they're stacked against them. That would be like telling a synchronized swimming team to go out and play a match of rugby or American football against some professional team. It seems futile, and yet we're going to see that when we employ the strategy that God gives us in this world, in the battles that we fight, not only is um, loss not inevitable, victory is ours when we fight as God calls us to fight. So we'll, we'll, we'll see this in just a little bit here. Um, so the presence of the fight, it's there. It's in full force with Amalek. But what is the plan of the foe? What is Amalek's strategy? This is important because his strategy is really coming from the heart of the enemy of our soul. So listen in. We're told in the New Testament on a couple different occasions that we are to not be unaware of how the enemy attacks, that we're not to be outwitted by his designs. Why? Because he uses them over and over and over. And so what is his plan? Well, first of all, they attack unexpectedly. They also are going to attack indirectly, and they're going to attack arrogantly. Uh, let, let's see what we mean by this. Well, we need some commentary. And the good news is in Deuteronomy 25, we have commentary on this exact account. Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 and 18. Listen carefully. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail those who were lagging behind you, note those key phrases, that he did not fear God. Arrogance, right? That's the arrogance. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, isn't that interesting? He's going to give them rest, even though they're in the resting place. He'll give them rest. In the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Okay, before we get into the plan of the foe, just note this fact that they're at a so-called resting place, and yet God says, when you come to the land which the Lord has given you, when the Lord has given you rest from your enemies, it's so easy to assume a place is a place of rest when God says, it's not your time to rest yet. When we get later to the book of Hebrews, we see that that true and final resting place for the believer is forever with the Lord. We have a resting place in Christ. We have a rest, but we will ultimately enter that eternal rest in his presence, free from even the presence of sin itself. 
Hallelujah. That thrills my heart. When I think about eternity and I think about what I'm excited for, I am so thrilled and excited to see the face of Jesus Christ. That's number one, to see the face of Christ. But not far behind that is to be free forever from the presence of sin, to sin no more, to be as he, because when I see him, I'll be like him. I'll see him as he is. Wow. Uh, now, faint, weary, lagging behind. These are the words being used um, when we see the demographic that was attacked by Amalek. Um, these are the ones who, for whatever reason, just couldn't keep up. There's some interesting word connections here. When you get to the New Testament, come to Matthew 11, verse 28, we read, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And that word labor, uh, in obviously Greek now we're talking, is kopiao. kopiao. And, and it's an interesting word because it's actually used a decent amount of times in the Septuagint, the Old Testament. But the first and second time it's ever used is in this very passage in Deuteronomy 25. And this is significant. It's translated weary or lagging behind you. So labor, those who labor, those who are weary, those who are lagging behind, those who just can't keep up. And we have a lot of that in our world today, don't we? We have a lot who are just weary. I think of the song, O Holy Night, right? Um, Long lay the world in sin and air pining. Just a weary world rejoices. Why? Because we long for that salvation. We long for that deliverance, just like what I talked about, looking forward to being not only with the Lord, but also free from this, this corruption of sin that, uh, that evades, invades all aspects of this world. So with that being said, um, we see that this connection is going to be found in Christ later on, but here we have those who are weary, lagging behind. Um, so don't miss this picture. Why? Because in your community, and specifically when I say community, I'm talking about in your local church, both in your church family that you might worship alongside on, on, on a certain day of the week or perhaps all throughout the week, I trust, in that community, but also in the broader church community. And then even without, beyond that, even in your own just physical community, where are those who are suffering, those who are lagging behind, those who are weary? Let me ask you, do you have margins in your life to even see those individuals? This is who Amalek chooses to attack. This is how he chooses to get in. And what we're going to see later on is God wants these people to be in the middle of the camp. He wants them to be surrounded, to be cared for, and this comes out clearly in the laws that he establishes. The vulnerable, being the foreigner, being the widow, being the, 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 uh, the orphan, these ones who are on the, the fringes of the community, he says, no, put them in the middle and care for them. If you want to see a strong local church, you're going to see those who are hurting the deepest, those who are the most rejected by society or by life's advantages, if I can say it like that, are now in the middle of the congregation. They're being cared for. They're being loved upon. They're being discipled. Friends, I'm not, I'm not saying any of this from any political perspective. I'm saying this from a biblical perspective. Where does the enemy want to get in? The enemy wants to get in at vulnerable points. 
at places where we're ignoring the weary and the hurting among us. So I encourage you, pause what you're listening to and ask who's vulnerable and weary and hurting. Do you even know? If you don't know, it's just because you're not close enough to them. You're probably so far in the front of the pack marching through the desert by Moses and Aaron and her or whoever else you forgot the ones who are lagging behind elders of local churches do you know the sheep in the fold do you know who's not eating the grass well who's not getting to the water who's got a weak leg who's got infections you get the point my friends this is a warning to us all what did Amalek do he cut off their tail as it says now, later on in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we've got more commentary on the Amalekites. And Samuel uh, says to Saul that the Lord sent me to anoint uh, you king over the people of Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them. Some translations say ambushed them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have, do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. I'll come back to that verse in a little bit because it's a disturbing verse for many who read it. Um, but I want us to see the picture that is in that. Um, and, and so, of course, the idea of ambush is to lay in wait. They were waiting. They were waiting. They were waiting for ambush to attack the vulnerable place of the children of Israel. It wasn't just that they cut off their tail. They were waiting to cut off their tail. They were waiting for those who were weary. They were looking for those who are most susceptible to the attack of the enemy. Friends, let's not play into the enemy's hand in this way. Take note, be aware, wake up. Because the enemy of our soul has not changed. And when we think about the enemy of our soul, it brings us to the next point, the picture of the flesh. The picture of the flesh. You see, Amalek is more than just an enemy of Israel. Amalek pictures our enemy as well. Amalek is a, a very, I'm not going to say a beautiful example because it's not beautiful, it's ugly, but accurate. It's an accurate example of our flesh. And what do we mean by this? Well, I already said it's warlike, and our flesh is very warlike. The flesh wars against the spirit. We know that scripture teaches us that over and over, that there is this war going on, and the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't do, I want to do. I'm, this is life here on earth. Now, what, what, what's the solution? We're going to see the solution is not trying harder. The solution is to surrender, to surrender to the Spirit's will. And there's such a difference between our feelings and, uh, and, and the Spirit of God. See, um, we so often think, but I feel like this, or I feel this, I feel that. Well, I've got news for you, that the flesh controls the feelings, but ultimately the Spirit of God is to control the Christian. And so be encouraged when things go against your feelings. Those are the opportunities for us to walk by faith and not by feelings. But let's talk about how Amalek is a picture of the flesh. Um, look, first of all, who, who were the Amalekites? Who was Amalek? Well, he's a close relative of Israel. So close, in fact. Why? He was a descendant of Esau. And who was Esau? Esau was Jacob's brother. And, and, and the children of Israel. Who is Israel? Israel is Jacob. These are the children of Jacob from the 12 sons of Jacob. This is his offspring when he went down to Egypt, right? And when he followed Joseph into Egypt. 
And so we have literally, these are like from his brother's family, the Amalekites. We're talking family members fighting. So first thing we see with the connection between the picture of the flesh and the Amalekites is their relation. Amalek was a close relative of Israel. Also in their resistance. See, Israel was no match for Amalek, the Amalekites. Um, don't underestimate the flesh. Uh, don't fight the flesh using your own strength and your own methods. Don't trust it. In fact, we, we read in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, have no confidence in the flesh. None. Zero. Zero. Don't put yourself above some sin and say, oh, I would never do that. You read the headline news of what somebody did and the sin they fell into and think, oh, man, them, they're wicked. Friends, I am above no sin. None. I don't, I, when I watch the news, I think, but for the grace of God, I am who I am. Friends, the more you get to know me, the more you'll realize that not only did God save me from sins I, I, I may have committed in the future, God rescued me deeply from sins I have been committing in the present. Sins that in this life, I chose rebellion against God and in his mercy, he rescued me. He pulled me from the miry clay. He set my feet upon the rock who is Christ. It's only the grace of God that I'm saved and there is no one that I'm better than. But I have a God who's holy and righteous and my identity is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I too can be declared holy and righteous in him. And so we see uh, this resistance. Of, what are we told in Romans 13, 14? Make no provision for the flesh. In uh, Galatians 5, 24, it tells us to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. So don't put confidence in it. Don't give it any provision. Just kill it. Just kill it. Kill the flesh. So we've seen the relation and the resistance in connection with the flesh and Amalek. But look at the ruin. What brings ruin to the flesh? Well, this is powerful, right? Um, the word of the Lord is Zerubbabel. Zechariah 4, 6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 4, 6. Um, so what was the ruin of Amalek? Well, we see a little bit later on that it was... Um, whenever Moses, verse 11, held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Well, Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So the first ruin here we see of Amalek was the fact that um, Moses was on the mountain. And we're going to see that this is a beautiful picture of prayer that's going on. And we'll get to that in just a few minutes here. But we'll see that the, the, the children of Israel did not prevail in battle when their swordsmanship was better executed. But rather, it wasn't about how they handled uh, the sword in their hand. But rather, it was about how Moses handled the staff in his hand. In other words, it wasn't about just how they fought the battle on the ground. It was about how they fought the battle on their knees. It was about their prayer life. And we see that this is what is being said in Zechariah. It's not by your strength. It's not by your power. It's by the Spirit of God. And that's why the power that we have to defeat Amalek in our life, the, the, the flesh in our life, the ruin of the flesh, it happens by the Spirit of God. And we have been given this gift of prayer where the Spirit himself intercedes for us and, and, and offers up the words that we don't even know how to say. And so we see this beautiful connection here. And that, that's why Jesus always taught them to pray and not to lose heart in Luke 18, verse 1. Um, but going on a little bit further, in verse 13, it says, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek. How? And his people with the sword. Now, when you think about him overwhelming them with the sword, 
it's not just merely prayer, there's also action involved. And we saw that back in Exodus chapter 14. And what is this action? Well, in Ephesians 6 verses 16 through 18, we see it outlined. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And then what? Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. What is that? Which is the word of God. And then it goes on, praying at all times, in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. In Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active. And what? It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So it's prayer and then obedience to the word of God. I've stored up your word in my heart. Why? So that I might not sin against you in Psalm 119, verse 11. Um, and so I want us to see that the ruin of the flesh takes place in the same way as the ruin of the Am Amalekites, and that is with what's happening on the hill, with Moses raising his hands to the throne of God, and then with Joshua using the sword in the valley, the ruin. But one more thing about the flesh in Amalek the relentlessness of it, the relentlessness of the Amalekites, the relentlessness of the flesh. See, in verse um, 16, there's this phrase that says, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation? Uh, this isn't necessarily an encouraging ending. You're like, well, okay, so it's just going to go on and on. Well, what's the point? The point is that the battle with the flesh is over and over and over and over. It's constant, right? It's not like, ah, I defeated the flesh. Now I'm just living in the spirit. No, it's an over and over, a constant crucifying of this flesh. It's a constant laying on the altar, the things that maybe we desire in the flesh because of our faith in the word of God and what it says. Oh, this is so important in our world today. We say, God just wants me to be happy. I want to be my true self and this and that. God doesn't call us to, to just be who we want to be in the flesh. See, he's created us with a purpose. He's, he's knit us together inside our mother's womb, and yet we were in iniquity conceived. And what does the Lord do? He said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And the Lord now um, conforms us into the image of his son, as we learn in Romans 8.29. But what is this relentlessness? Well, we read a verse that was very difficult. Over in 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. We have to know the picture of Amalek to see the severity of what God's saying here. When God says this through Samuel, it just sounds like God is a God who just, just wants to wipe people out. But what does Amalek picture? It's a picture of the flesh. It's a picture of that which destroys, destroys our life. And so God says, don't spare anything. Well, in your life, what does this look like? Not sparing child or infant or ox or, or donkey, camel, whatever it might be, sheep. See, there's little areas of your life you perceive little, you perceive insignificant, things that you allow to be absorbed, whether that be music you listen to, whether it be conversations and gossip that you allow to have happen, whether it be a lack of forgiveness towards someone, harboring bitterness, whether it be self-righteousness, a refusal to have a conversation, Lack of generosity, 
whatever it might be. What God says is all these things that are fleshly related, kill it. Get rid of it. Get rid of your pride in that regard. Let not even, as it says later on, a hint of sexual immorality be present in your life, let alone any other form of sin. And so what we see here is a relentlessness of the Amalekites and a relentlessness of our flesh. The picture is clear. Very, very established in Scripture. Uh, it is worth noting that there was a, a, another branch of the Amalekite family tree which um, comes up later on. When you come to the book of Esther, you've got a guy named Haman, right, who wants to get rid of all the Jews. Extermination. Um, and most likely, Haman, being a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites. And so again, enemies of the Jewish people, as we say in French, depuis longtemps, from a long ways back. Um, and, and so, again, I just want us to see that their, their pervasiveness throughout, um, throughout Jewish uh, children of Israel's um, history is very present, just like the flesh also is very present throughout the history of the church. Galatians 5.17 says this, But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So we've seen the presence of the fight, the plan of the foe, the picture of the flesh. The last thing is the path of faith. The path of faith. And what is the path of faith? Just a few quick things. The posture, the partnership, and the portrait. What's the posture? Well, the posture of prayer. Uh, see, the majority of this text focuses on what happens on the hill, not what happens in the valley. We would say in the valley is where the real battle's being fought, but really it was on the hill that the battle was decided. That's where it was determined, and it had God's intervention in the valley, but it had man's intercession on the mountain. And uh, as we explain, I think this becomes really clear. What's this posture of prayer? We have Moses with his hands lifted, with the staff being held high. And this was a common picture of prayer in, uh, in, in Jewish life. Um, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, we read Paul saying, I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Just this typical position and posture of prayer. And so when someone reads it, they would see prayer in this. But when we think of intercession in the body of Christ, arms lifted to heaven, there's a beautiful phrase that takes place in verse 16. I hope you, you caught it. It says, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. A hand upon the throne of the Lord. Now, I, I'm not assuming all of you are using the same translation as, as I am here, the ESV, but there's a lot of different translations of this verse. ESV says, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. Um, NLT says, they have raised their fist against the Lord's throne. NIV, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord. KJV, because the Lord has sworn. Um, uh, YLT, because a hand is on the throne of Jah. So there's a lot of different translations of it. Most literal, though, is actually this one, at least according to um, my, my studies. And that would be a hand upon the throne of the Lord. But what I see here very clearly, um, regardless, is this is about, whole, our, uh, about Moses and ultimately the children of Israel putting their hand where the Lord is and just saying, this is your battle. This is your fight. You've got to win this 
for us, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. Let me ask you, do you have a hand upon the throne of the Lord? They call this place, the Lord is my banner. And why? Because look, we're not going anywhere without you. Later on, Moses says, look, if you're not going to go, I'm not going. I don't even want to go. I don't want to go forward if, if you're not with us. Why? Because your presence is imperative. Your presence is vital. Without you, we can do nothing. And so this, this literal, a hand upon the throne of the Lord is such a picture for us. May we live life with a hand upon the throne of the Lord. May we live life with the Lord being our banner. That which we go out under, what does it say in Psalm 60 verse 4? You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. Selah. See, it's a place of refuge, a place of not hiding as much as a place of uh, position. As a little child, I remember um, they, they had this, I say, terrible, terrible activity in my neighborhood called, called Folion over in Senegal, West Africa. Folion means fake lion. And this guy would dress up in a loincloth and paint his whole body and have like these all unfur, these, uh, you know, um, like feathers and like things coming off of him. And he'd go around the neighborhood chasing children. Yeah, children. And if he caught a child, you either had to give him money or you'd get beaten. Yeah, terrible game, I'm telling you. So anyway, whenever Folion was going on, I didn't want to go out of the house. I was terrified. Uh, but I remember if one of my friends, like Germain or Rene, who Rene was this, uh, in, in the Senegalese military, big, strong guy. And I remember sometimes uh, Folion would be going on and he was there and we would go somewhere and he would hold my hand, that strong, big hand of Rene Faye next to me. And we would walk the streets and the Folion would be on the street chasing children. And I would have no fear. Why? Because my hand was in Rene's hand. And that Folion would not mess with me. Because if he messed with me, Rene would mess with him. And he would be messed up. Friends, my hand is in the Lord's. The Lord is my banner. I flee to him and find not only refuge, but strength. Strength to move forward under his banner. Why? Because if the Lord is for me, who can be against me? Oh, hallelujah. So we see, uh, we, we see this posture. We also see a partnership. Partnership's very clear. Moses gets weary. He's tired. He can't keep his hands up. So Aaron and her. Aaron means light. Her means uh, white or uh, yeah, white. So if you have that connection, you've got light, you've got white, you've got purity, right? This white light. Uh, what a picture holding up his hands when he's weary until the battle is won. Friends, there's a lot of weary Christians out there. There's a lot of weary souls in our world. You might not be Moses, but will you be her? Will you be Aaron? Will you hold up the weary hands? Will you participate in the partnership of the gospel? Paul talks about this often when he's writing letters. Your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We are a body working together. Our calling to strengthen one another, to encourage one another. In Luke 22, 32, Jesus tells Peter, strengthen your brothers. In Acts 18, 23, Paul travels back and, and, and strengthens the disciples. Uh, in Romans 1, 11, he says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift and to strengthen you. We have other examples of this. Timothy was sent once to, in 1 Thessalonians 3, to strengthen and encourage them in the faith in verse 2. See, we're to strengthen each other, hold up each other's arms. My brother, friend, Brian Cretney, wrote 
a beautiful poem based on this account with the fight with the Amalekites in Exodus 17. It's called The Threefold Cord. I want to read it for you. It says the battle lines were clearly drawn in Rephidim that day. On one side, the Amalekites who would not go away. The other side, old Moses and a host of two-legged sheep. This must have looked to Amalek a clean and easy sweep. But what was not apparent to the enemy that day was how they'd lose the battle in the most peculiar way. Now, let's be clear who won the war, none other than the Lord, but how? He won amazes us, a simple threefold cord. For down below was Joshua there in the battlefield, the frontline fighter in the fray, his humble sword to wield. But he was strengthened while another raised his arms to God. The interceding Moses lifted both his prayers and rod. But Moses and his weary arms were helped by others too. Their task was to support him in the task he was to do. And so it is, more times than not, the blessing of the Lord will come down through such humble means, a simple threefold cord. Frontline workers, intercessors, burden bearers too. There is a special part to play for someone just like you. Beautifully written, but conveys the message of this text. See, we are in a battle. And yet in this battle, we need one another. I remember the time, and I'm not going to go into the story right now. You can find it in What If Jesus Meant What He Said. But uh, when my friends and I were being burned alive and the fire was lit to kill us in our car that day in February of 2013, and at the very moment that we were going to be burned alive, God had so many people on their knees at that very moment praying for us at 3.30 in the morning and on the East Coast of the United States at 12.30 at night, the to the minute on the West Coast, people in Missouri at 2.30 in the morning, exact same time, over in Cyprus at 11.30 in the morning saying, God, send Nathan through the fire today. God and his people in partnership holding up the staff holding up Moses' arms as the battle was being fought in the valley. I'm alive because of the truth of Exodus 17. Friends, this is just as true today as it was back then. There is a battle going on, and the good news is this victory is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. The flesh will not have the final word. But may God's glory be demonstrated in our utter reliance on Him. The problem is not that we cry out to God in desperation. The problem is we fail to realize we are always desperate for the Lord. I love the fact it says Joshua overwhelmed. He overwhelmed. See, because Joshua, it's the word Jesus when we switch languages. Jesus has overwhelmed our enemy. And the picture, well, the picture is clear. See, Moses overcame the enemy by raising his arms, surrounded by two men, one man on each side as Moses' arms were extended on a hill until sunset when the battle was won. Friends, are you getting this? Because there's another man who went up on a hill and had his arms extended with men on both sides of him too. And he too was fighting a battle, but a, a, a battle with far greater implications than Moses a battle which ultimately was for the souls 
of every woman, child, and man who has ever lived. And that battle, too, was fought until sunset. And I've got good news. The man in the middle won the fight. And his name is Jesus. Is your faith in him? And if it is, well, now let us fight the way he tells us to fight. Not in order to win the war, because Jesus won the war, but that God would be glorified in the battles of this world. That not only might he be glorified, but that many might know him through it and through our testimony of reliance on him. This has been Into Your Bible. For more, check out www.intoyourbible.org. And I encourage you to download resources, share it with friends, um, whatever might bless both you and them to the glory of God. And remember, our prayer for you, as always, is that you would be one who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Thanks for listening to Into Your Bible, the podcast, an extension of the ministry of Rock International. This is a place where we dive into the Holy Bible, seeking a generation who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Wherever you listen, subscribe to not miss an episode. And if you want to take things a step further, leave a review so others can find it too. For free resources, show notes, and more, check out our website at www.intoyourbible.org. Until next time, keep diving in.